Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. We stand here in this beautiful capital city, rich in history, culture, and life. A city that stands proud and that will stand for years, decades, and centuries to come as a continued symbol against tyranny. So that was the prime minister uh, in a surprise visit to Ukraine yesterday. And uh, speaking in Kiev, where he had a, a joint news conference with Ukraine's president, Vladimir Zelensky, uh, he was there to to personally raise the flag back up on Canada's uh, embassy in Kiev. So I think that was encouraging. Credit where credit is due. I, I was hopeful that the prime minister was going to figure out a way to go to Ukraine, as you know Boris Johnson and some other world leaders have done. And I think it sends a strong message. Right. Not just, you know, that we're standing shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine in, in an, a literal sense in, in this case, uh, but also sending that message to Vladimir Putin uh, that we're not afraid to go to Kiev. We're not afraid to have our leaders go to Kiev. He does not control Kiev. And I think there's something powerful in that, too. It's a combination of, of substance and and uh, symbolism. And it's got to be both. You know, the prime minister is often accused, I think, reasonably so, of favoring the latter, uh, the, the symbolic. And we need to make sure that we follow through with the substance. And there were some promises uh, made by Justin Trudeau, some commitments to Ukraine. And, and, you know, let's hope the government follows through on that. Now, that came on the eve of what we all knew was a significant day, at least in in Putin's mind. Uh, Today is May 9th, uh, Victory Day in Russia. And it's an important holiday, and and it's meant to commemorate, uh, you know, the Russian victory over Nazi Germany. So we're all wondering, you know, how is Putin going to make the connection? Uh, between the historic significance of this day and, and his adventure in Ukraine, which has obviously not gone very well and has had all kinds of, of devastating consequences. Is Putin going to try to figure out a way to declare victory? Uh, does this mean an escalation? Does this mean a de-escalation? And it was hard to, to read too much between the lines. I mean, Putin did not go so far as to try to declare victory in Ukraine, uh, but did promise uh, that there will be victory. He didn't really mention Ukraine, which I, I think is in keeping with this idea that, that this is kind of about uh, erasing Ukraine altogether. Now, joining us uh, for some thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon, someone who's been following all of this very closely, Marcus Kolga, is uh, founder of DisinfoWatch.org, also a senior fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute's Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. Marcus, great to have you back with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on, Rob. Uh, let me get your thoughts on uh, the Prime Minister's surprise visit to Ukraine. And as mentioned, I mean, Boris Johnson, I think, was the first Western leader to do so. Others have. How, how important is this? Incredibly important. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, it, it sends a strong message that uh, Canada is confident that uh, Ukraine is going to uh, defeat Russia. It's going to push back the Russian invaders. Uh, and it also sends a signal to Vladimir Putin that uh, we won't be bullied uh, and, for, and we will not be uh, forced to move our embassy out of Kiev. And so uh, overall, it's, it's important uh, as a symbol and uh, uh, a signal of our, our confidence in the, in the Ukrainians' ability to defend themselves in this war. Um, and also it's, it's, a, it's, it's a, a morale booster for, for the uh, government in Kiev and the people of Ukraine. 
Yeah, it, it certainly is. I mean, it, it's in, in this context, symbolism matters, right? As I said, you know, we got to make sure that we're following through on the substance, but th- this is powerful symbolism. That's right. The fact that, uh, you know, we had the prime minister, the deputy prime minister there, the foreign minister, mm. all raising the Canadian flag together uh, at our embassy there. I mean, it's, it sends a strong message. It says it, it tells the world that we won't back down. And the fact that we're joining other Western governments in doing so, um, you know, it's, it will allow uh, Ukraine to a certain extent, at least in Kiev, to, to start moving towards uh, a, a life of uh, more normal life. Uh, outside of this war. And, it, and again, it, it boosts uh, confidence in, uh, in the Ukrainian government itself and uh, certainly the Western world demonstrating that, you know, we're not going to leave uh, Ukraine behind, that we're there for the long haul and we won't be pushed around. Well, in terms of where this is all going from here, and I think a lot of eyes were on Moscow today and the significance yeah. of, of Victory Day and, and what Putin was going to say, you know, before this military parade in, in Moscow. What did you hear or, or maybe didn't hear today that, that stood out to you? Well, look, uh, you know, there's been speculation for some time that uh, Vladimir Putin would make some sort of a, a pronouncement, uh, some sort of an announcement that's at the uh, Victory Day uh, parade today. Um, let's not forget that uh, just uh, about a month and a half ago, uh, the head of uh, RT, Russia Today, the Russian state media platform, uh, declared on Russian state TV that um, that uh, Victory Day this year would be held on the streets of Kiev, that Russian soldiers would be marching through Kiev um, to mark their victory and uh, defeat of, of Ukraine. That hasn't happened. Uh, Vladimir Putin is very much aware of, the, uh, of his failures, of the failures of his army in this war. Um, you know, he hasn't made any sort of... His uh, soldiers have made uh, very little uh, progress in, in the east, they were, of course, repelled when they tried to attack Kiev. They resorted to a war of terror, um, attacking civilian infrastructure, bombing just this weekend, bombing a school and killing 50 people uh, that were sheltering inside that school, bombing hospitals. Um, you know, there's not much to celebrate when you're, uh, you know, engaging in the same style of warfare that Victory Day is supposed to celebrate the victory over uh, when we're in World War II. Uh, the Soviets and the Allies uh, defeated the Nazis. Uh, Vladimir Putin now is engaging in the same sort of tactics that the Nazis did. So there's not much to celebrate. I think Vladimir Putin recognized that. That's one reason he didn't mention Ukraine very much. The symbols, that Z that's become a symbol of this war, uh, wasn't seen uh, very much throughout the day. And uh, a flyover by Russian military aircraft that was supposed to take the the formation of the letter Z. Um, that didn't happen. Uh, they they claimed that there was poor weather, and because of that poor weather, they couldn't fly the aircraft. Uh, the sun was shining all day today in Moscow. So, um, you know, I think that Vladimir Putin is coming to the realization that uh, things are not going as planned, and uh, perhaps he's starting to reconsider um, his adventure in, in Ukraine at the moment. Well, and, and let's hope so, but uh, that, that may also mean that, that he's looking for some kind of a deal to save face, and a deal that could come at the expense of, of Ukraine. I mean, a lot of fear that perhaps Russia is going to sort of, you know, take these, these eastern parts of Ukraine and, and try to absorb them or declare them to be independent and, you know, call that a victory. I mean, do, do you think that's... Um a likelihood at this point. Well, I, I, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I think it would be a big mistake for the Western powers to allow Vladimir Putin to do that. If yeah. they allow him some form of a victory at this point, 
um, we have to recognize the fact that um, he's not going to stop here. Um, Vladimir Putin just changed his constitution, his constitution of Russia last year. That, and it would allow him to stay in power until 2035. Um, he's clearly demonstrated that uh, he has a voracious appetite for conflict. Uh, he's been engaging in this sort of behavior since 2007. And if we allow him a victory, that will ensure that he'll rem- he could remain in power and that he'll continue doing this. So um, the only thing that we should be focusing on right now is stopping him and making sure that we hand him a humiliating defeat. And that means sending more weapons to allow the Ukrainians to push back uh, Putin's forces. And they've been doing that in Kharkiv over the past few days. They've made gains. They've recaptured several towns around Kharkiv. Uh, so it's not unrealistic to believe that Ukraine could push Vladimir Putin right out of eastern Ukraine. And we need to keep continue doing so. Uh, otherwise, again, we risk uh, potential future conflicts uh, at the hands of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, it's interesting because you alluded to, you know, the the cheerleading role that a lot of official Russian state media has, has been playing here and really trying to advance a lot of Putin's own narratives. But what's your sense of beyond that, how isolated he is? He obviously holds a lot of sway uh, over, you know, the corridors of power in Moscow. But is there any semblance, any sense that there is any kind of a, a pushback or that he's he's starting to lose support? Well, look, uh, he's he's already uh, placed a number of generals uh, of his generals under house arrest. Members of the FSB, uh, this is of course the successor organization to the KGB. Uh, a number of uh, senior officials have also been arrested over the past few weeks, um, and uh, and so I, I think that the cracks are starting to show. Um, we haven't yet seen, you know, we were there was a hope that the the corrupt oligarchs. That, uh, that help enable Vladimir Putin, that they would start turning on him. A few have, the ones that are living abroad, they've, they've criticized him, and, and Vladimir Putin has certainly lashed out at them. Uh, but I think we need to wait a little bit longer. We need to make sure that the sanctions that we have in place um, remain in place. We need to ensure that we expand them. And we cannot remove them until Vladimir Putin is, leaves office. Um, it, it's, we cannot end... Uh, and those sanctions, we can't go back to usual if, um, you know, Vladimir Putin just freezes uh, the conflict right now, if he stops right now. We need to continue uh, place, uh, continue applying those sanctions. Uh, and, and so to ensure that those, those cracks that are appearing right now continue to grow and, uh, and that the intelligence services eventually also uh, start questioning Vladimir Putin's uh, position. That's, uh, that, that's, that's where we need to head. Absolutely. Much more is mentioned. Disinfowatch.org, NelsonMcDonaldLaurier.ca. Marcus, appreciate it as always. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me on, Rob. All the best. Marcus Kolga, founder of Disinfowatch.org, a senior fellow at the McDonald Inst- uh, Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. So talking about why it matters to have Canadian officials present in Ukraine, present in Kiev, uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with Vladimir Zelensky, raising the Canadian flag over the embassy. So credit where credit is due. I think it was the right thing to do, regardless of, of who the prime minister is. Unfortunately, maybe to some, it becomes bogged down in, in partisanship. This should transcend that. This was just the right thing to do. I wasn't convinced that this prime minister was going to do that. Uh, so when I woke uh, to that news Sunday, my first reaction was, well, good. Because anything else would make me a total hypocrite. Since I've been, been hoping for and calling for him to do exactly that. You know, I praised Boris Johnson when he did it. And, and other you know, Western leaders and politicians have done so, too. It, it matters. It sends a message.
been a lot of conversation, obviously, around the Bank of Canada and the role the central bank plays and has played in dealing with inflation. And further to that, you know, the perception that maybe the bank has, has screwed this up. Maybe they missed the mark. Maybe they were too slow to react to inflation. Maybe they were too dismissive of the idea uh, that inflation was going to be a severe and, and persistent problem. And look, I mean, certainly I think the bank can be criticized for its decisions. But how important is it that we maintain the independence of the central bank? Now, there have been some suggestions that maybe the bank be reined in or given a little more clear direction or perhaps audited as, as some have suggested. And is that the answer to, to anything we're dealing with right now? Because, look, there's, there's a really important job that the bank needs to do here and to find balance that they need to walk, obviously, in you know, ensuring that the economy remains strong but also ensuring that we can tame inflation. So we've already seen some in, in, um, interest rate hikes from the bank. We're likely to see more. So why is it so important that we avoid any interference in the bank's independence? Well, joining us to talk about, uh, you know, why this is such an important principle, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Steve Ambler, who's a professor of economics at the University of Quebec in Montreal and is also the David Dodge Chair in Monetary Policy at the C.D. Howe Institute, cdhowe.org. Professor Ambler, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be with you, Ross. So in terms of criticism of the central bank, and I know you make the argument that, you know, the bank's not above criticism, but, you know, what's the, the responsible way, I guess, to, to address those issues? Yeah, I think, you know, in your, in your introduction, you said that the, the bank probably un- underestimated how high inflation was going to get and also how persistent it was going to be. I think some of the reasons are partly beyond the bank's control. I mean, who, who, we didn't predict the the war in Ukraine breaking out and causing all sorts of uh, increases in commodity prices, wheat and so forth. And, uh, you know, we've still got pandemic problems, uh, which are causing supply chain disruptions, like several thousand ships, I think, are still sitting off the port of Shanghai, waiting to be unloaded and loaded. So... But at, at this point, um, you know, the, the bank's main mandate is to get inflation back to its 2% target. And it's, uh, as you pointed out, they started hiking the, hiking the uh, overnight rate target. And they'll have to keep on doing so. Uh, you know, there's going to be several more hikes in the near future. Uh, most people are predicting another 50 basis point hike. Uh, in early June. And when this happens, of course, uh, it affects the the government of Canada. I mean, it, when, the, when the government uh, issues new debt, it's still running pretty large deficits. It'll have to pay higher interest on those, on, on new issues of debt. And as well, when uh, its bonds come to maturity and it has to refinance, it's going to have to refinance those bonds at a, a, a higher cost in terms of interest payments. So I'm, I'm sure the bank is feeling some, at least some implicit pressure not to hike uh, interest rates too quickly. Right. But, um, you know, this is the reason why uh, the way things work in Canada is that the, the bank and the government sit down every five years and come to an agreement over the the monetary policy framework, and then the bank has... Um, operational independence on how best to carry carry out its mandate, and I think that's the way things should be. 
I mean, when you get, uh, you know, the, the most extreme cases of government interference and central bank behavior, you know, we're talking about cases like Zimbabwe and Venezuela, and that right. you get very easily get into uh, situations of hyperinflation when, uh, you know, central banks can't uh, effectively fight inflation. Right. There's the, the aspect of the Canadian dollar and, and keeping the Canadian dollar attractive. So what, what is the danger then if, you know, there's, there's a lack of confidence in the Canadian dollar because of threats to, to the bank's independence? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there, there is that possibility. I don't think it's a serious possibility at this stage. Um, you referred to calls to, uh, as you put it, rein the bank in. Um, I don't think, I don't think that's going to get very far and I don't think it should. Um, and in, in terms of auditing the bank, I mean, the bank, there, there already, uh, are, audit procedures in place uh, with reputable auditing firms. Uh, um, that's mostly to look at, uh, you know, from an accounting point of view. Uh, there have been some suggestions that uh, the Auditor General be given oversight over the bank as well. And I, my own point of view is that the Auditor General doesn't necessarily have the expertise to evaluate how uh, well, the bank is carrying out its mandate. Right. But, I mean, you know, and, and some have said, look, I mean, it's the government that sets that mandate in the first place. So there, there's, exactly. there is some role for government to play. But where, where does that line need to be drawn? Um, you know, I, the, the, the term operational independence, I think, is, is very important. Once you've established what the goal or goals of the bank uh, are going to be for the next five years, then you give the bank free reign to to carry them out. I mean, uh, I'm trying to remember the year. It was in the Diefenbaker administration when uh, it's called this famous case called the Coin Incident, when the government of Canada actually uh, gave the bank instructions, uh, detailed instructions as to what to do, and uh, that was considered to be um, uh, a motive for the governor to resign at the time, or at least not seek a renewal of his mandate. And I think that and that that established a precedent. I think it would be the same thing today. Today, if the the government uh, instructed the bank not to raise interest rates, I'm you know I think I'm pretty sure that uh, that would be cause for the uh, for the governor to resign his position. Well, but I mean, obviously, I mean, the government uh, certainly has its own interest, and and obviously, they want to manage the cost of borrowing. They want the economy to be strong. Uh, but the Bank of Canada is looking at it through a different lens, obviously. So what, what do you see as the bank's immediate and, and short-term priorities here? Uh, getting inflation under control. Um, yes, the government is definitely interested in keeping borrowing costs low, but uh, um, I noticed that I think we spoke last in, in January when the bank did not raise rates. Right. And since then, the inflation rate has gone up by one5 five or six percentage points and the bank has raised its interest rate only by uh, 75 basis points what that means is real interest rates are actually getting more and more negative um you know the, the bank i think to some extent is still behind the curve and is going to have to quite smartly uh, raise interest rates to the point where you're getting close to having real interest rates which are no longer negative 
in order to fight inflation, and that uh, almost directly goes against uh, what you said as the, you know the government's interest in keeping borrowing costs low. I mean, the, the bank is also facing a delicate balancing act at this point uh, uh, in terms of getting inflation under control versus raising rates so much that uh, it throws the economy into a, into a recession. Right. And that, that's a big concern. And, you know, you see some yeah. observers talking about, you know, the risk of stagflation where you get kind of the worst of both worlds, right? The economic slowdown and, and the high inflation. Is that something the bank needs to be worried about? Uh, yes, it certainly does. But so it's, you know, it's, it's not facing an easy task over the next uh, 12 to 18 months. But uh, it's going to be really interesting, interesting to see what the CPI numbers do. Uh, then the April numbers come out in, in, on the 18th of May uh, to see whether inflation is still accelerating or whether it's uh, slowing down a little bit. If it's still accelerating, then things are starting to look pretty scary. And we'll see where it all goes from here. Much more is mentioned, cdhow.org. Professor Ambler, thanks so much for the insight. Appreciate you joining us here today. Thank you very much. Have All a best. good day. You as well. That's uh, Steve Ambler, a professor of economics at the University of Quebec at Montreal, is the David Dodge Chair in Monetary Policy of the C.D. Howe Institute, saying, look, the bank's got a lot of important work to do, and there is government oversight, but there needs to be operational independence. And we don't have that. If we water that down, if we infringe upon that, that's going to hurt us in the longer run. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. So some uh, real uncertainty now all of a sudden with regard to the proposed $26 billion uh, takeover of Shaw Communications by Rogers Communications. And, you know, there were some who were wondering whether this is where we would see this this come up, that once it got to the competition bureaus, uh, time to, to make a decision, that the competition bureau might have some issues with this proposed deal. And that appears to be the case. The competition bureau says it is asking the competition tribunal to prevent this deal from going ahead. In the view of the competition bureau, this deal would lead to higher prices, poor uh, service quality, fewer choices, particularly in wireless services. So for now, uh, it appears as though uh, Rogers is, uh, as uh, our next guest reports, scrambling to rescue its takeover of Shaw. By lining up a suitable buyer for Shaw's wireless carrier, Freedom Mobile, right? So that's where the wireless factor comes into play. And maybe if the competition bureau is convinced that Freedom Mobile is looked after, that that side of, of the competition equation in Canada is taken care of, that maybe there's a way this deal can still proceed. So this, this isn't the end of it uh, in any sense. But obviously, this is a big hurdle now for Rogers to clear. Uh, so full coverage uh, at theglobeandmail.com. But uh, joining us this afternoon is Andrew Willis, a business columnist uh, for the report on business at the Globe and Mail, a veteran uh, business journalist and uh, working in the business side of things in this country. Andrew Willis, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, good to be here, Rob. This is a, this is a fascinating day on the telecom front. No kidding. So, I mean, to what extent should we be surprised that the Competition Bureau has some, some big issues with this deal? I, I don't think anybody's too surprised. The, the thing that's amazed Rogers here is they had pledged to sell Shaw's Freedom Mobile business. Mm-hmm. Freedom Mobile's got about 2 million customers. It's an incredibly attractive business. It, it, it's, it's part of the growth engine at Shaw. Um, but 
Rogers always knew that as the biggest player in, in cell phones with about 11 million of its own customers, this was never going to pass muster. It, the problem that Rogers is having is they can't find a buyer for freedom that seems to satisfy what the Competition Bureau wants. And, and that's the issue. The Competition Bureau wants clearly wants a, a, an owner that's really committed to the cell phone market, not a private equity fund that's going to buy this business and then flip it in a couple of years. And, and that's the tension now um, between Rogers. And as we found out today, Competition Bureau is willing to go to the tribunal to block this deal. And that's, that I think has, well, that I know has taken Rogers by surprise. This was a, this hardball tactics from the competition watchdog, which came out on Friday. That was a real surprise, a real shock to Rogers. That's interesting. And maybe some people have been confused about this side of it. And I think it's important, you know, to point out what you just highlighted there, because we always knew that Freedom Mobile was going to be sold off. I don't think Rogers was any under any illusion that it could just roll Freedom Mobile into its own wireless business. But it's it's not a case of just finding any old buyer then that, you know, the, the company that takes over Freedom, how they run that company, that really matters to the Competition Bureau then, doesn't it? It, it does. And look, the Competition Bureau loved Shaw as an owner. Shaw, they refer to as a disruptive force, and they mean that in the best way. In markets where Shaw has a big presence, um, they've managed to lower cell phone fees, they've lowered the cost of data plans, and what the Competition Bureau is saying is, look, we want a new owner who looks like Shaw. Well, there's, there's not many of those companies around, Rob. Like, there's only a, a couple of players in Canada who, who are regional telecom operators with national aspiration. That short list would include Quebec Or, which is a, a very significant player in Quebec, right. uh, has ambitions nationally, but doesn't have any operations right now in Alberta and BC, although they have bought Spectrum. And the other, the, the list after that gets really short. Maybe Kojiko, which again is a big operator in cable in Ontario and Quebec, doesn't have any wireless business at all. Um, but past that, you get into the realm that I mentioned before, the potential other owners of, of Freedom Mobile, are mostly private equity funds or extremely wealthy families like the Aquilinis in, in Vancouver, the owners of the Canucks. They've been putting bids forward, but to date, it looks like those kind of owners aren't what the Competition Bureau is is, is looking for. So that's the tension right now in this transaction is, is can Rogers find a buyer of freedom that satisfies the regulator? Well, my goodness, that could give Quebecer a lot of leverage here, couldn't it? Enormous leverage. <laughs> that's exactly right. And all the analyst notes that, that are seen... So just to step back a bit, when we got into this transaction almost 14 months ago, uh, the expectation was Freedom Mobile would fetch a big number, like 3 to $4 billion. And, and what analysts are saying is if, if the regulator is dictating who gets to buy this, it can only be Quebecor, then the price Rogers received is likely to be lower. And, and, and Rob, without going too far into it, there is years and years of bad blood between Quebecor and Rogers. They, they fought in court over um, network sharing agreements and all sorts of business arrangements between the two companies in the past. So for the two of them to sit down and cut a deal, it's going to be a tough negotiation. It's interesting, and you wrote in your piece that, that maybe Rogers should have seen a lot of this coming, that they didn't listen to, to what was being said in Ottawa. Maybe they've kind of stumbled into this position. What, what do you mean by that? Well, as, as I said, this is been 14 months of negotiation, and it was pretty clear from our reporting from sources at the company, sources in the government, that um, a private equity buyer for Freedom Mobile was never going to satisfy the regulator and probably wouldn't satisfy uh, the federal minister. We wrote that lots of times. I think it was fairly common knowledge in the industry. Uh, and yet that was what Rogers kept coming forward with. Rogers kept coming forward with 
Um, the least competitive of competitors, I think, would be one way to sum it up, Rob. They, they brought forward players who, who really weren't the arch rivals that Quebecor was. And, and I, I, you know, so I'm not too surprised that, that, too surprised that the, um, the regulator had problems with, with the kind of buyers that Rogers was, was selecting, but Rogers is saying we were shocked. I, look, I, the regulator, I, I, we thought at the Globe and Mail that the regulator and the um, federal minister made their intentions fairly clear. Rogers, though, tried to, as I put it in the piece I wrote today, Rogers tried to play it a bit cute. So moving forward here, I mean, it, it seems like maybe we're in a position where, you know, Rogers can find a buyer, probably Quebec or, and this can all move forward. Or now there's the possibility that, you know, this, this collapses. Where, where do we seem to be at right now? Oh, it, Rogers is, so Rogers and Shaw have, have stated clearly since Friday that they remain committed to this deal. What they've done, though, is they've bought themselves some time. A transaction, Rob, that we thought was going to close by June 13th, now likely to close till July 31st. So it's just, Rogers is just asking for a little more time to try and find a buyer that satisfies Ottawa. Yeah, I think we've just reset the rules, but we haven't stopped the game at all. And, and Rogers still remains extremely committed to this transaction. Well, we're seeing the shares in both companies uh, dropping today. What, what do we read into that? Yeah, the, the, the uncertainty that we heard about on Friday when we, that did undermine Shaw's stock this morning was down right off the open about 10%. Then, but it's been rising through the day. And as the Competition Bureau has given more details for their, uh, for their actions, and they've shown... Their whole problem is around the wireless, the one part that, that Rogers has said that they're willing to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, Shaw stock is bouncing back up. But there's, okay. the Shaw stock is still trading well below the price uh, of this deal. It's about a 7% discount to where the takeover is supposed to happen. So there is still lots of doubts around where this one's going to end up. Very interesting. Well, full coverage is mentioned at theglobeandmail.com. Andrew, appreciate the insight. Thanks so much. Make some time for us here. Thanks, Rob. All the best. There you go. Andrew Willis, uh, veteran business uh, columnist, journalist uh, with Globe and Mail. He's been following this ongoing saga, uh, theglobeandmail.com. So, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that this is where the Competition Bureau is going to come down. And that, that makes it all very interesting here going forward. That it's not just enough to, to find any old buyer for Freedom Mobile. It's, it's got to be a buyer uh, that can ensure that this remains a viable choice for Canadian telecom uh, customers. So, you know, it's it's easy enough for Rogers to just dump it on somebody who doesn't really care about the future of, of Freedom Mobile. The competition bureau says, no, 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 that's not going to cut it. If we want to preserve the, the competition we have, uh, that you got to find something better. So there's not a long list of companies that would fit the bill. And if you're Quebecor, uh, my goodness, that puts you in a pretty strong position here. Well, hey, friends, welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Ridge with you on this Friday afternoon as we get set to uh, head into the first weekend of May. Uh, we'll get some of your phone calls coming up in this hour. You can reach us in Edmonton, 780-496-0063 in Calgary, 403-974-8255. We'll touch on the conservative leadership race later in the hour. A few other things to get to as well. There's an interesting bill before the Senate right now that could have some really severe, serious implications for Canadians' privacy rights. Uh, and so our next guest has raised some concern about this new reasonable general concern 
this new standard uh, we're, we're going to set uh, for allowing border officials to go through your smartphone or laptop. Like, what would your reaction be if a border officer demanded uh, to have access to your smartphone, demanded you open up your laptop and log in? Is that something that they should be able to do? I mean, I think we take border security seriously, but there's got to be a, a proper balance here. There's also the question I, I did want to touch on as well. Regardless of what the issue is that's being discussed and voted upon in the Senate, does Alberta have proper representation? We still are not fully represented in the Senate. Something else our next guest has highlighted. Paula Simons, uh, Alberta Senator, part of the Independent Senators Group, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Senator Simons, great to have you back with us here. It is lovely to be back, Rob. Busy week in the Senate for me. No kidding. Well, that's good. I, I guess that's good. First of all, and, and you were speaking about this, that, and I guess Alberta's not alone, but, but why is it that we do not have our full complement of, of senators right now? Well, that's a really good question to which I don't have an official answer. Uh, British Columbia, which only gets five senators to start with, only gets six senators to start with, has been down to five senators since the August 2019 Alberta only has four senators at the moment when we're supposed to have six. Uh, and there are vacancies right across the country. We currently have 16 vacancies at the Senate, and we have more retirements coming up quickly. So, you know, part of the problem is that in the olden days when Senate, when uh, Prime Minister just made Patriot they could appoint pretty much whoever they wanted. But five years ago, when this Prime Minister committed to Senate reform, he committed to a system where we have an independent board of advisors who take applications and go through them and then suggest a very short short list of people to the prime minister. So it is a more time-consuming and cumbersome system. And, of course, in Alberta, we have the added wrinkle of a government that doesn't recognize that appointment process and wants to have its own uh, probably unconstitutional uh, Senate elections. So there are... There are practical reasons why this is taking so long, but I'm grumpy because, you know, we can only blame things on the pandemic and blame things on everybody's really busy for so long. If the prime minister is serious about the Senate reform experiment, which I think is a very good initiative, then he has to fill the seats because right now, I mean, Alberta and British Columbia are in particular disadvantaged. We're not getting the votes and the voices that we need to have from those two Western provinces. But the whole Senate is starting to get, the works are starting to get gummed up. We literally don't have enough people to sit on the committees. And some senators are now sitting on three committees, which is, which is suboptimal, mm-hmm. shall we say. So, you know, I, I worry sometimes that the prime minister, having embarked on this quite radical Senate reform, which put free-thinking independent senators in great numbers into the Senate... I hope he's not thinking better of it, because there is certainly an argument to be made that having a large cohort of independent senators is making it much harder for the government to get its own bills passed. Right. So I'm hopeful. You know, as a, as a columnist, I always tried to live by the motto, never ascribe to malice that which can be adequately explained by incompetence. Yeah. And perhaps that's a bit unkind. But I really hope that the reason is just that they haven't got their their stuff together uh, and not that they have gone lukewarm on the idea of an independent Senate. Mm-hmm. 
Well, let's talk about one of the government bills uh, before the Senate right now. This is Bill S-7, an act to amend the Customs Act and the Preclearance Act. First of all, wh- why is this uh, a Senate bill to start with? <laughs> I wish I had an answer to that. Okay. Um, this, this comes out of a court case out of Edmonton. Uh, two, two, different, two different criminal cases where people were arrested at the border for possession of child pornography. Now, child pornography is noxious and awful, but the question was... Did the border services officers have sufficient ground to go snooping through their phones and laptops looking for child pornography? And the Court of Appeal in Alberta, uh, I think it was two judges from Edmonton and one from Calgary, said no, that there was not a clear enough test for when you should be able to go poking through our phones and our laptops. And the court gave them a deadline to fix this, which they've now missed once. They got an extension. They applied for a second extension and didn't get the second extension. So there's certainly some pressure to do this as quickly as possible. But I'm still a bit fuzzy myself on why this bill is starting in the Senate rather than being in the House of Commons. I can only assume that the House of Commons is very busy right now with budget-related bills, and maybe they thought this would proceed more quickly if it started in the Senate. I'm not sure that that's I'm not sure that I think that's such a great work plan. Right, without getting too wonky. So, I mean, if, if a law passes first in the Senate, it, it clears the House, and then does it have to go back through the Senate, or is it, is it, it a done to, deal it in the House? Go, it has to go back to the Senate if it's amended in any way in the House. So if okay. the bill at the end of the House process isn't the Senate bill asked, then the Senate gets another look at it. If, if, you know, if we amend the bill and the House accepts our amendments, then presumably it could go faster. But, and if there are no amendments at all from either chamber, then it's a slam dunk. But I don't know that that's, I don't know what's going to happen because this bill, um, this bill has, I think, stirred up a fair bit of controversy. And that is because, you know, the court said to the government, you need to have a test, a threshold, mm-hmm. for when a border officer can go through your phones and laptops which hold your most personal private information. So the government went away, and they came back with a test that has no precedent anywhere in Canadian law, nor anywhere else in the Commonwealth. And they've said that you can search a phone or a laptop if the Border Services officer has what is called a reasonable general concern. That is a completely novel test. There is no other search threshold in Canadian law, whether at the border or at a time of arrest, that has such a vague, I mean, as I said in my speech, what in blue blazes is a general concern. Um, it seems to me that that's language that could be used to justify a search on a pretty flimsy pretext. And if you're the kind of person, you know, if you're a racialized individual, if you're, you know, queer or trans, if you are somebody, you know, somebody who might... Uh, trigger a stereotypical response, uh, your odds of being searched are probably much greater. Yeah, it's interesting. I saw a quote from uh, Lex Gill, who's with the Citizen Lab at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto, so someone who knows his stuff on this file. He says, to my knowledge, this has never existed before as a legal standard in this country. We have reasonable suspicion, we have reasonable grounds to believe, etc. This has never existed, never been used as, as any kind of a legal standard before. So this is uncharted territory that, that the government's going down here. Yeah, and I'm really concerned about this 
from a civil liberties perspective, but also from, you know, from the perspective of the Canadian Border Services Agency. So imagine that you are a good, upstanding Border Services officer doing your best to keep the country safe, and you're given this as the test. Well, it's pretty confusing, because what is the benchmark? What, there's no precedent. There's no clear guidance about what that means for officers serving in the field. And how long will it be before a defense lawyer says, wait a minute, you know, I'm challenging this because reasonable general concern, just the, you know, the way the test is, is framed may be unconstitutional. And what's really interesting, Rob, I think for those people who are living in Alberta, as you and I are, um, because the Court of Appeal deadline has expired, if you're a Canadian traveler arriving in Alberta, they can't search you because the court has said that the pre-existing test was unconstitutional. Right. So for the moment, Alberta um, has no, like, there's, there's no grounds on which they can search because they've missed the deadline. And so it's a mess. And I think that some of my colleagues, you know, this was flagged for me by the people at Open Media, uh, as an issue of concern, and because I've been working on other privacy files, you know, people brought this to my attention early on. So I think I was one of the first senators, you know, not because I'm a genius, but because smarter people than me pointed it out to me, um, that this is that this is grounds for concern. Well, it is. Look, I think a lot of travelers you know, are generally deferential when it comes to border guards. We understand, you know, the job they're doing. And, and typically people are going to comply with those requests. Like, I, you know, I've got nothing to hide, so... Uh, I have no reason to say no, but there's all kinds of implications. If it's basically uh, almost like a fishing expedition, what's, well, what's the know, basis and, in the and, first place, right? You know, and that's the concern, you know, and we're sort of being told, oh, well, can't, border services officers have pretty good intuition. Hmm. They can sort of tell who the bad actors are. But intuition is not a test no. for anything. I mean, we carry our lives on our phones now. Think how much more is on your phone now than was before COVID began. Think how much you've been relying on your phone and your laptop to do your grocery shopping, to pick your movies, to, you know, to organize your love life. I mean, I don't use mine to organize my love life because I'm a happily married woman. But, you know, think about all of the very private information, the embarrassing photos. I mean, things that are not criminal. But do you really want the state to have access to that? And I think the other thing that's concerning is even if they don't find, say, child pornography or seditious materials or any other things that are banned under the Customs Act, while they're looking in your phone, if they find evidence that they think indicates that you may have committed another offense that has nothing at all to do with the Customs Act, they can turn that over to the local police for investigation. Yeah. And some people will applaud that. I mean, some people will say, hey, this is a great way to search people coming in, find all kinds of bad actors. And, you know, I understand that. I don't like criminals. I certainly don't like child pornographers. I'm not big on terrorists. But if you let everybody's phone be searched on the grounds of reasonable general concern, you're going to capture people for whom that is a terribly unfair test. And even if people aren't charged criminally, they're going to be embarrassed. They're going to have, you know, some of their most private secrets turned over to the state. And we all understand that at the border, you can be searched in ways you can't be searched every day walking down the street. Right. We understand that the thresholds are lower at the border, but this threshold is so low that, you know, he would have to be an inchworm to limbo under it. 
Well, speaking of limbo, and it's it's we we got we got this urgency in a way because of this legal limbo that we we need something to fill this void. But what the government has put forward here in S seven seems like something that requires uh, that the Senate take its time, that the House of Commons take its time, that we really pour over this, and that may mean all kinds of amendments and hearings. Like it's a process that should take a longer time, but. We need to to address this quickly. How do how do we you know how do we walk that balance here? Well, that's I mean that's what the Senate is supposed to be for for sober second thought. And so I mean it's certainly not unprecedented to start a bill in the Senate, but I worry that especially because you know we're coming to the end of sittings. There are not that many weeks left in which the House and the Senate are going to sit. And my experience is that when the government has a legal deadline like this. They then turn to us and say, oh, this is an urgent emergency. You have to pass it. And I have a lot of brilliant colleagues in the Senate who are constitutional law experts. And I would like them to have the chance to apply their scrutiny and their expertise to this legislation. Because once we set this as a standard, you know, once we put it into law, I mean, I say it'll be challenged legally right away. But right away in court terms can be quite a while. You know, it could be years before we get this law settled. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are handing people who have a lot of power when we're at the border. And as you said, we feel deferential. I mean, it doesn't matter. I can be as innocent as, you know, as, as the purest as the purest snow. When I come through the border, I get a little twitchy, right? Because oh, yeah. you think... You know, it's that same feeling when you hear a police siren behind you. It doesn't matter if you've been religiously going the speed limit. I don't know. Maybe I'm just paranoid. When I hear the siren, I'm like, oh, no, what did I do? Are they pulling me over? And they aren't. But, you know, people at the border, their demeanor is not always a reliable indicator of whether they are actually a person of interest. Absolutely. Well, this is one to keep an eye on. Uh, Paula Simons, appreciate making some time for us here today. Thanks so much for this. I always enjoy speaking to you and to your wonderful listeners. Well, that's very much appreciated. All the best to you. Uh, that is uh, Alberta Independent Senator Paula Simons. So highlighting some legitimate concerns here around a bill, maybe a lot of folks haven't even heard of at this point. It's unusual to, to start a bill in the Senate. Bill S-7. That's why it has the, the letter S. So we got a weird situation right now in Alberta, thanks to this Alberta Court of Appeal uh, ruling. There is no basis at all for a border guard to to search your your laptop or your phone. None at all. So you could argue maybe we need some basis for legitimate concerns, but you know how how watered down do we make that? And what the hell is reasonable general concern? That's what this law uh, proposes. So some big questions here. All right, we got a lot still to get to here in this hour. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We're back after this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.